My name's Leonard, and uh, I don't know if there's anything that complicated about me, which is why I should be happier, I guess. I am. I, I work in an office. People walk right by me, and I know they don't see me. And I go home, and I watch my wife and my kids. They don't look up when I sit down. I don't. I don't know. It's like no one cares that I'm gone. They should love me. Maybe they do, but I don't even know what it is. You spend your whole life thinking you are not getting it. People aren't giving it to you. Then you realize they're trying, and you don't even know what it is. I had a dream. I was on a shelf in the refrigerator. Someone closes the door, and the light goes off. And I know everybody's out there eating. And then they open the door, and you see them smiling, and they're happy to see you. But maybe they don't look right at you, and maybe they don't pick you. Then the door closes again, and the light goes off. Five kids living there when I was growing up. Two are in jail now. Two committed suicide. How's that for social theory? And the fifth, she became a detective. Hello and good morning. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. We've had a good break, and now we're getting back to it. Yes, we are. Will Morgan here, and you can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Today is the first day of September 2015, and this is our... 196 broadcast and on the news front we're pleased to announce that Ezra's second book or in his Astro Music series will be arriving on September 11th <laughs> like that wasn't on purpose it's called Audio Mancy look for it from Sync Book Press also Synchronized Season 2 has begun this season as a video format so point your screen at the Sync Book for all the latest in news and entertainment. Today's show will be neither exactly mind nor matter, but somehow both. Rather like a synchronistic event, an occult novel, or a supernormal power. Today we're excited to once again explore the altered states of Aslan. And we'll do so with a historian who's looked deeply into this matter and who is also one of our favorite guests, Dr. Jeffrey Kreiber. You can hear his 42 Minutes appearances in our SyncBook Plus member archives on episodes 39, 72, and 154. Dr. Kripal, religious scholar, author, and educator, holds the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University in Texas and is the author of a number of books including Comparing Religions, Mutants, and Mystics, Authors of the Impossible, and Eslam, America and the Religion of No Religion, among others. More information about his work can be found at his website, kripal.rice.edu. It's always a great pleasure to have him on the show. Welcome, Jeff. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm, I'm well. Thanks for having me again. I, I didn't realize this was number four. Yeah. Uh, it's, getting, it's getting old hat. It, it is. <laughs> <laughs> you were going to have to get you a jacket or something and call you. <laughs> yeah, something. Maybe a, a free lunch or something. Something. <laughs> something for sure. Well, well, there was something that kind of interesting happened that kind of prompted me to want to reach out to you again, and that was the Mad Men series finale ended at, I mean, Dawn ended up at Esalen. 
But then something else happened, too, is that True Detective Season 2 did its series premiere at... So, did, did you watch any of those shows and... and no, actually, to be honest, I didn't. I've never seen a single episode of either show, although, of course, I've heard about them through others. Well, do you have any thoughts? I mean, because it was really strange how they think, om- Yeah, Doug's pointing out the way that it was in two major plugs of pop culture, almost at the same time. I mean, because it's weird, Mad Men ended with Aslan and True Detective started with like it's not, it's they're they're not the exact thing, but they're you can totally tell that they're in Big Sur. I mean, right. and so it's kind of like the the typical they're sitting around and everybody's meditating kind of cliche, in a way. But they're definitely. No, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm aware of the Mad Men finale. I mean, I, I know that they did not shoot that uh, finale on the grounds of Esalen, but they. They probably shot it very close, you know, just down the road. And uh, I was told it was, you know, quite faithful in terms of the geography and the, the general feel. Um, and, it, you know, it makes sense. I mean, Esalen was a, was a major cultural uh, phenomenon in the, in the 60s and 70s. So it, 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 um, it, it didn't surprise me. Uh, and, of course, it brought a lot of attention to the Institute and just a bit of attention to the book again. Um, so that that was nice. Um, but the show was kind of about the transformations that occurred during the 60s as seen through this protagonist, Don Draper. And so right. it, it was interesting to put him there at the end because it seemed like... Right. It's, I mean, even though the end turned, it pivots at that point, so it seems like he's actually going to have some depth at that point, but then it seems like the wink at the end was the depth was going to be used to sell more Coke or whatever. More more products, yeah. The right. Coca-Cola ad idea, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm thinking, Douglas, this just kind of struck me while you were talking, though. You know how we talked earlier about one of the main themes for Mad Men is they, they keep alluding to the fact that he's Superman. There's little hints and, and stuff like that uh, mentioned. But now, you know, I see... I kind of tag it in my head that Free Associative with the Institute almost actually being Professor X's like Institute because they happen at the same time as pointed out by Jeff earlier. Do you know what I mean? So it's almost like Superman visiting. <laughs> right. right. Well, there's definitely some right. sexual tension. The whole show is about sexuality and everything of that nature. And then at the very end of it, he's kind of like he's, he's harnessed that you Get what I'm saying? Yeah. In the show, Don is in, he's in one of the, what do they call those? The the workshops? Uh-huh. Uh, he's in a workshop, and it, it seems like there's even a hot seat. And so maybe that's a good place uh-huh. to start. And so right. it seems like in terms of psycholo- psychology, and, and so we we need to know this show. who Who is Fritz Perls and who is Abraham Maslow? You know, and what uh-huh. were these what, what, the, the sessions? What were they called? It's totally slipped my mind now. The well, those are it's, those are Gestalt sessions because Gestalt psychology was the psychology that Fritz Perls brought to Esalen in the in the early nineteen or mid nineteen sixties. And um, Abe Maslow, that's that's another psychologist with another set of ideas. We we can certainly talk about both of them. Uh, I mean, where do you want to begin? What is the Freudian left? 
<laughs> okay, well, that's yet another psychological stream. So maybe we can back up. I mean, Esalen was founded in, well, it was, what became Esalen was founded in the fall of 1962 by, by two Stanford graduates, Michael Murphy and, and, and Dick Price. Uh, Michael was looking to found a kind of intellectual ashram that could bring East and West together, uh, science and spirit. And Dick was looking for uh, to found a place of healing and community. He had been uh, deeply abused by the psychiatric system and um, had had a, a kind of enlightenment experience that was mixed up with a kind of psychosis or a kind of uh, mental suffering, and which was then brutally shut down by 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 at that point medicine and electric shock treatments and and various forms of psychiatric incarceration essentially. So Dick was looking to 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 found a, a place of healing and community, Mike, uh, a place where uh, Eastern or or uh, Asian philosophies could come together with Western science. Um, the central idea of the place was something called the human potential, which they borrowed from Aldous Huxley. Uh, and by human potential, Huxley and, and the founders of Esalen meant that there are, um, as, there are cap capacities or abilities innate in the human being that are generally not accessed or not actualized. That, in fact, culture, every culture, actualizes some of these potentials but suppresses or or or, or prevents well, all the others and so what Ethlin was about was talking about those human potentials and trying to come up with actual practices so that they could be actualized and, and experienced by people on a kind of real day-to-day -day level um, so psychology was a big deal there um, one of the first psychologists they were interested in was Abe Maslow, who in the early 60s was one of the most famous psychologists in the U.S. He was teaching at Brandeis University. If, if you took a, a intro to psych class in college, you probably remember Maslow through something called the hierarchy of needs. Um, but what he was really interested in was what he called self-actualization. Uh, and he... Uh, and by self-actualization, he meant extraordinary uh, functioning of creativity and and uh, art and science and well-being. Um, and so what the Esalen founders did is they sort of put together Huxley's notion of human potential and Maslow's notion of actualization or how to actualize these human potentials, and they created this little institute. Fritz Perls was one of the many figures who came there in the 60s and used Esalen as a kind of stage to, to uh, popularize and practice his, his particular psychology, which he called Gestalt, which is German for, for whole or, or, or the whole. Um, and he used something he called the hot seat, which is when he would put a person... Uh, a person would volunteer, come up and sit in a chair, and and Pearls would essentially take the person apart uh, in front of a group of people, and then help that person put himself or herself back together in some in some healthier way. Um, and so, the Freudian laugh is yet another stream of uh, psychology that flowed through Esalen and and the counterculture as a whole, and. 
these were uh, a number of radical psychoanalysts coming out of the Freudian tradition that saw libido or erotic energy uh, not as a metaphor but as a real metaphysical force or power that, that courses through the body and, and, and in some cases through the entire cosmos. And so the Freudian left was about accessing those, those energies and, and freeing them up for, for greater health and, and well-being. Well, you kind of begin the book by saying you talk about the altered states of Esalen. And so what right. are you referring to there? And then I think you even go so far as to construct three pillars of altered states. Yeah, so the altered states, of, so the phrase altered states of consciousness was brought into uh, use in, in 68, I think 69, I think it was 68, by uh, a psychologist named Charlie Tart, or Charles Tart, who published a collection of essays and he gave it that title, Altered States of Consciousness. And this became a kind of code in the late 60s and 70s for any kind of state of, of consciousness or, or state of, of body that is somehow unusual or different than our ordinary sort of egoic state. Um, and one of the things I do in the history of Esalen is I basically try to argue that you can't really talk about this history as if time is just some sort of linear arrow and everything is a function of politics and and society and ordinary forms of awareness that in fact this this particular history is driven largely by what I call altered states of history um, by by which I simply mean hu individual human beings having extraordinary experiences of one form or another and then using those experiences to change the course of history by you know founding a movement or writing a book or or just living differently uh, their own their own private life but what does this have to do with comic books <laughs> well the Esalen history has very little to do with com i mean that's another book i mean we've talked about that before i i don't actually address comic books in okay um let me you might history. have you ever heard have you ever heard of uh something called the x club jeff the what? The X Club. The X Club. Well, I think there's such a thing in the X Men uh, comic book series, but but I know I don't. I'm not sure what you're referring to. Okay, it's a Google. If you Google it, the X Club will come up. The X Club was a dining club of nine men who supported the theories of natural selection and academic liberalism in late 19th century England. Oh, okay. Yeah, you mean yeah, yeah. Um, well, this was Tom, Thomas Huxley. I think was part of that. Yeah, Thomas Henry Huxley, the initiator of the X yeah. Club. Yeah. There's people who have. I mean, even if you look it up, it, it says something to the like for the Marvel comic team. See X Men comics. So the X Men is at the top of the the X Club. Although I think right. that these do, I mean, natural selection is that in opposition to what his, I mean, this is what, this would be Huxley's like grandfather, maybe? Or so out of that, P.H. Huxley was a friend and defender of Charles Darwin in the okay. late 19th century in, in England. He was English. Aldous and Julian Huxley, who were brothers, uh, Aldous was, of course, the writer, and Julian was an evolutionary biologist, they were the grandsons of T.H. Huxley. 
so they they came from this very distinguished scientific family in 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 England. Do you think um, the ideas of natural selection are in, in opposition to like what the institute would later have become through the thoughts of Huxley? Does that make sense? Is that a yeah? It question? sort of makes sense. I mean, so. Darwin actually never used the word evolution the way, the way we use it. He talked about natural selection is what he actually talked about. And and so that was the, the code in the 19th century. And it got translated by other people into a lot of different domains, including political history, society, and, and religion. Um, but those were all extensions of Darwin's thought. It wasn't what Darwin was arguing per se. Um, and of course, Darwinian evolution, they weren't, Darwin, they didn't have any notion of the mechanisms, the actual biological mechanisms of evolution. They didn't know anything about genes that would, that would come later, much, much less DNA. Um, but Darwinian, Darwinian natural selection and what became evolutionary biology, um, the, the, the fundamental premise is that there's no, direction to it. There's no ultimate meaning or purpose uh, and that it works through mutations and, and random um, chance events uh, involving adaptation and survival in different environments. The kinds of evolutionary spiritualities and mysticisms that get developed in the human potential movement and certainly get expressed in a pop cultural code through the X-Men mythology are not Darwinian. Um, they clearly do ah. see consciousness or agency in the evolutionary story, uh, and they see um, ultimate meaning in it, really. I mean, it really becomes a, a kind of spirituality. So so what, what, what 20th century people mean when they when they when they adopt some kind of evolutionary spirituality and what Darwin and the X Club meant in the nineteenth century are very, very different things, although of course they're related. Uh they're not completely unrelated. The man who discovered uh natural selection at the same time as Darwin, uh Alfred Wallace, um he definitely believed in some kind of spiritual force or power that was behind human evolution. He saw a kind of biological thread to evolution and, and a spiritual thread to it. And and so you can you can trace those all the way back, but um they're also in intention to this day. I mean I think if you talk to most evolutionary biologists they would vociferously deny that there's any meaning or purpose or agency to to evolution. Which leads us right into synchronicity, which is an important topic in your book because Michael Murphy kind of let the Institute develop on some level by reading synchronicity? Yeah, Mike kept a journal of synchronicities and the early history of Esalen was just punctured or one might say even guided by these synchronicities. Um, one of one of the first and earliest synchronicities was um, before there was an Esalen, there was just a little group of, of a half a dozen people living um, in what then was just a motel, really. It's called Hot Springs, um, Big Sur Hot Springs. And Mike had purchased a dozen copies of Abe Maslow's uh, 
toward a psychology of being and was having the community read this book. And within a couple weeks of having begun to do that, uh, Abe and Bertha Maslow, um, who were out in California for a conference, were driving down Highway 1 in the dark and were essentially having trouble uh, driving the road at night, and if you've ever driven Highway One at night, you know, you, you know why. I mean, it's a it's a winding cliff side uh, highway that you know any wrong turn in any number of places is instant death. Uh, and so Abe and uh, Bertha pulled over in just this sort of random weird motel they saw. He thought it reminded them a bit of Hitchcock's Psycho movie, uh, and they walked in and announced uh, themselves and asked for a room and. Here was this little community that had been reading Maslow's book for, you know, weeks. So they they took that certainly as a sign they were on the right track. Um, so and there are just countless little synchronicities that just you know just move through the whole history. And so what I did when I wrote the book is I I took those seriously and and essentially argued that you know people are using these as ways to make decisions and um, clearly clearly synchronicities have historical impact when. A community like Esalen takes them seriously, and of course they did. Well, then going back to the the point of evolutionary agency, as a historian, you're using your left brain and logic and trying to see the causal, you know, effects of the the event produces this. What do you think there is some kind of will beyond that kind of moved this whole thing, like a density that created Esalen? Well, I personally do. Yeah, I'm not. A, I'm not a Darwinian. I mean, I, I, um, I don't think evolution is a completely random process. I, I think chance and and randomness there certainly are, but the 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 die are essentially loaded um, toward toward some end or or goal or purpose or meaning. And I think human history um, is part of that process. I think what's so interesting about modern or, or contemporary or and by modern I mean the last couple thousand years is that you know we're be, we've become aware of our own evolutionary history and we are engaging in behaviors and choices that are essentially changing um, that 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 history we're essentially taking control in some sense our own evolution our own evolution um, we may be screwing it up, but, but we're <laughs> conscious of it. <laughs> we're conscious of it now, and our our cultural practices are also changing our evolution. It's not just a matter of biology anymore. I, clearly, culture, uh, in a kind of epigenetic fashion, is is uh, is weaving back into the into the genetic expression, and and we're we're in some sense influencing our own our own future. Which kind of speaks to this idea of a. St- that we're writing a story that's writing us, which makes me think of The Island by Huxley, because he died in 62, but it kind of prefigured... Wait, Huxley died on the same day as Kennedy in 63. He died in 63. Sorry. Yeah, he died on November 11th, 1963. Okay. Yeah, same day as Kennedy, and I think C.S. Lewis? No, I can't be right. Something's close. Somebody else. There was an earthquake on that day in Esalen also. That's true. Yes. But didn't didn't the island somehow prefigure what Esalen became? Like there was this strange synchronicity between that story and just how it developed? Well, 
you know, so Island was Huxley's last novel. I, I think it came out, I think Island came out in 62. Okay. Um, and if you read Island, it's very much Huxley's own answer to Brave New World. Uh, unfortunately, everybody associates Aldous Huxley with Brave New World because that's what we read in high school. <laughs> that's what our high school teachers have deemed most important about Aldous Huxley. And so we all think of Huxley as this sort of depressing, dystopian, wry cultural commentator. But actually, at this, in, the, in the last two or three decades of his life, he turned more and more to Indian philosophy and mysticism and mesmerism and parapsychology and uh, in the in the 1950s to psychedelics and and became more and more openly mystical about things and so when he writes Island, really what Island is about it's a, it's about a little uh, imaginary island called Pala um, whose culture is founded by a an Indian a uh, tantric Buddhist and uh, a scientist from, I believe Scotland. It might be Ireland, but it's 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 one of those cultures. And so you have this fusion of Western science and technology, and and Indian uh, uh, philosophy, or or really really tantra is what it is. And and you have this sort of ideal community that's wrapped around altered states and a kind of use of human sexuality as as a sacrament or a or a, or a sacred ritual um and and so it it sort of looks it's sort of predictive of what will become the counterculture or at least the ideals of the counterculture it certainly looks a lot like what Eslin wanted to be never quite became but certainly wanted to be um, it's unclear to me, I, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say it was, you know, it, it predicts what comes later because what, of course, was happening is all of these countercultural actors were reading Island <laughs> and they were, you know, they were yeah. trying to make it happen. So it, it wasn't that, it wasn't just that Huxley was a, a you know, a, a precognitive cultural commentator, although he, he might well have been, but it was just as much that the youth culture loved Aldous Huxley and, was trying to make Ireland um, an actual social reality. Um, if I could say one more thing about Huxley, I think it's really important. Um, and it kind of goes against the assumptions about him. Huxley was in many ways an elitist in the kind of, I want to say the good sense. Um, he didn't He didn't think that these spiritual experiences or experiments were for everyone and that you needed to be trained to engage in them. Um, he was quite close to Tim Leary, but he disagreed profoundly with Leary that you should release things like LSD uh, into, into the broader culture. He thought that was a very, very bad idea and that it would only result in the culture, a kind of whiplash effect and the culture coming down hard on um, people taking psychedelics and would eventually result in some kind of oppression or, or legal, legal system. Of course, that's exactly what happened. So, so he, you know, he was all for psychedelic experimentation and mystical experience, but he was not for just anybody 
doing it. He wanted discipline. He wanted some kind of, you know, ritual um, culture uh, wrapped around it. And that's really what Island's about, if you read it. It's the culture of, of Island is not um, the hippie culture of Haight-Ashbury. It's, it's a very um, disciplined culture through and through in some ways. The island ends on a down note, though, however. I mean, it ends it does. with oil winning over. Right. Again, it's predictive, isn't it? I mean, really what destroys island or what destroys the culture are two things. One is the oil industry, but the other is a kind of Indian or Hindu fundamentalism um, that that is that is uh, embodied in in the, the the woman who runs the island with her uh, uh, corrupt uh, son. Ah, yeah. It's a kind of it's a kind of it's a kind of theosophical fundamentalism, really. It's not technically Hindu, but it sort of looks it looks to the future to what will later become uh, fundamentalism in the in the eighties, nineties, and, and and today, of course. It's an interesting paradox that happens where the guru disciple relationship is so formal, but then you know the Californian consciousness wanted to play with. You know those ideas, but they didn't necessarily want that kind of authority at the same time. They wanted it both ways. Well, yeah. What happens is the guru-disciple relationship in India is very much an authoritarian relationship. The the guru has absolute power and absolute authority, and and the disciple submits. Um, that did not sit well with uh, American democracy or American values around individualism and individual agency. And so what you see in the, the, the counterculture and beyond, you see a kind of initial enthusiasm and embrace of various North American guru traditions. But then in the 80s and 90s, you, you just have one sexual scandal after the other um, when these authoritarian systems crash, end up crashing up against, you know, American culture, which is about individualism and about, you know, the integrity of the individual. Yeah, and so with the idea that Esalen is an American institution is kind of interesting to me because there is this, uh, the values grounded in, in, uh, in our own land in place also. Yeah, and Esalen functioned as a filter. It, you know, it embraced a lot of aspects of, of the Hindu and Buddhist traditions, but it also turned back a lot of aspects, you know, it only, it only let through the filter what, what could work. And of course, a lot of things didn't work that it let through anyway. I mean, Esalen has functioned as a kind of experiment for, for over 50 years now. It, there, there, in, in essence, there, there have been no gurus at Esalen. That's not quite true because there have been charismatic individuals who've taught there, but <laughs> it's not a place that gurus tend to go, um, it's a place people go to experiment with different teachings and different teachers. But, you know, there's a new, there's a new set of teachers every week. <laughs> so it's, it's impossible to, to get an ashram or, or, a, or a Buddhist monastery going there. Well, <sighs> no, dang it, we have to talk about comic books. <laughs> because I'm also, I'm also reading um, The Serpent's Gift. Uh-huh. And I'm finding it wonderful, but I can really tell how all of the books that I've read by you kind of bleed into each other now, because 
of the way that you kind of set up uh, mutants and mystics in this particular book. Do you think that's that's a synchronistic process that the the your books grow out of one another, or is it actually? No, the books definitely grow out of one another. Um, each each book, you know, is a kind of seed for the next book, and um, and there's a very much an organic process. It, you know, it, if one were to start with the first book and just read them all the way through, you, you would see that very clearly that there's an organic process there, and that the books keep orbiting around the same set of questions and the same set of ideas with different historical materials. So, you know, okay. I start out with Indian. <clears throat> tantric materials and then quickly move into comparative mysticism and the, the, all of these topics are being lumped inside my head by reading your material now like i'm starting to get a bigger picture we were talking about a purpose and what i particularly do as far as sync goes is look at an actor's films look at all of their films and then I would see common themes go through each of the individual's movies. And we're discovering right. that they have a personal, like the last interview that we did with an, uh, an, uh, an actor was Keith Coogan. And he has this comic book theme keep coming up where there's um, like in, he's in the movie called um, adventures in babysitting where the whole thing is they're going to find Thor. The little girl walks around <laughs> with a Thor costume right. on and stuff the whole time. All right. But right. the thing is, is they have uh, Playboy is the center of all of the commotion in the movie. They have a, a there's a they steal a Playboy that has notes for this mafia drug run or whatever. They steal their uh -huh. Playboy and that's what they're chasing off of. And he has Playboys come up a lot. Like, and the more we started talking about it, he was like, movies that I hadn't seen by him were specifically about that, like a flip book of sex and the comic book and whatever. So that, they're, they're together. Like me reading your book after talking to him, I was like, well, this is exactly what, you know, Dr. Kripal's talking about as far as the relationship between pornography and comic books and the whole – here, I'd like to read something. Um, let's see. Indeed, some have speculated that superpowers of a comic book hero and the sexual powers of its creator or most devoted readers are sometimes irreversibly related. The more powers, the less sex. The less powers, the more sex. So is that what superpowers mean? And do you see any relationship into the popularity of comic book movies in this day and age? Why they're doing so good is because they're somehow relating our sexual tensions. Well, I, I don't know if I'd say the latter. I mean, um, I know when I was a kid in, in the 70s, Reading comic books was a was a kind of sublimated sexual experience. I mean, this was you know before puberty, so I didn't really know what sex was. Mm -hmm. But you know, the bodies that were being drawn were in, were incredibly erotic. You know, both the female and the male bodies were were drawn in in quasi, if not if not explicitly erotic ways. So. The, the superhero genre in the 60s and 70s was a kind of sublimated erotic genre. And, you know, sexuality of the superheroes was treated in, um, you know, a very indirect way. I mean, Superman has no sex and he's basically omnipotent. Uh, Batman is a playboy and he actually has no superpowers. <laughs> he's just a guy with lots of... Uh, 
lots of gadgets and lots of money. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely think there's something there. I, I wouldn't say that superpowers are just about sex, though. I, I don't think we know what sex is. Um, oh, for sure. Don't give evolution. me... You, you once said to me, let's not reduce the, the mystical to the sexual, but the sexual to the mystical. Right, Which right. And that's what I mean when things. I say we don't know what sex is. Ah, so I'm, but the, the, the analogy you made with Superman and Batman would carry on into, say, Iron Man and Captain America. Captain America is like this moralistic individual, super, mor- or super moral fiber, uh, only, you know, only, even missed the opportunity. That's the whole point, is when he crashed land, he misses the date with the one he loved or whatever, so he never even got to be with her. But Iron Man, of course, is a playboy, and has no powers. All he has is a suit of armor. <laughs> right. No, there you go again. I haven't thought about that, but you're right. You're absolutely right. Well, speaking of superpowers, we had Dean Radin on at the beginning of the summer, and then he also he also had a really cautionary note. He said that these altered states, the thinning of your filters, can be really damaging for some people. And you know, he really had kind of a a cautionary tone as far as you know that the fact that some of the Indian traditions you couldn't get there real fast but with some of the altered states that they played with at Esalen you know that was you know the kind of world that we're the immediacy that that our world is is about right now how, how, what what are your thoughts about that Jeff as far as you know people experimenting with things that they don't realize are as dangerous as they could be. Well, I'm always suspicious of the danger talk. Okay. Um, you know, <laughs> historically, people who have experimented with what we call paranormal or psychical abilities were demonized and and persecuted by various cultures, including European Christian culture. And when I hear language about how such and such a practice is dangerous, I hear echoes of that demon talk. Oh, interesting. And and of witch hunts. And uh, if you if you talk to Dean too, he'll often point out that people with psychical capacities, in particularly in Hollywood movies, they always end up getting killed in some way. That Hollywood seems incapable. <laughs> Of, of dealing with psychical capacities in a realistic and positive way. Something always bad happens. And I think that's a kind of secular echo of this Christian demonization of, of magical abilities. And and I hope at, at some point we can move away from that and stop demonizing things we don't understand. Uh, and, and it's not that I don't think there's no danger involved. Maybe there... Maybe there is, um, but I, I'm, I'm just initially suspicious of danger talk um, for that for that reason. I do think, as you've heard me say before, I think a lot of psychical phenomena, which we can call superpowers, only appear in dangerous situations. Um, you know, people in car wrecks or people dying or or or, or very very ill. I, I think, and I think that makes perfect sense. I think the, the, the ego and the body are here to keep us separate from the rest of the cosmos. And when those things start to break down, 
we start to realize that actually we're we're spread out through the cosmos and we're not just this body or just this brain. So I think danger is inherent to uh, these these capacities, I think, but not in the way that maybe we think. We're almost out of time, but then let's just hit you with the biggest question. What is the purpose of being alive? I think it's to realize who we really are. And, and I don't think we know who we really are. I think we've confused ourselves with you know, little bitty egos and, and little bitty bodies. And, and I, I think we're those things for sure, but we're way, way more than that. Are you working on anything that we should, you know, anything coming out soon that we can look forward yeah, to? Yeah, yeah. I Actually, I have a book coming out in February with Whitley Strieber called The Supernatural. What? Three words, The Supernatural. And it's a, it's a long conversation between Whitley and I about, about all of these things. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we're looking forward to that for sure. <laughs> and we'll have yeah, you back. Uh, yeah, we would do number was that will that be five or six? <laughs> that would be five. And, and and when do I get my free lunch? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I was down in El Paso recently and I thought of you because I walked by some little kiosk in the middle of the airport and it had a Rice University like a sweatshirt or hoodie or something, but I think it was, is your symbol the owl? Yeah, and that's something. Yeah, that's creepy. I mean, thinking about all the <laughs> shreeper and everything like that, because it, it struck me, it, you know, I, I immediately thought rice, and I was like, oh, I'm in Texas. This is where Dr. Kripal would be, and then I noticed the owl, and it was kind of just staring at me as I walked by the kiosk. Like yeah, the owls little, are... Uh... The, uh, the owl is our totem. That's so weird. I mean, what would the, well, I don't I don't think I've ever heard of any team ever be an owl. Like I've heard doves. <laughs> nobody's yeah. ever. It's just. I mean, it has I imagine to do with wisdom, I guess. But it has to do with story? Athena. Yeah, it's an old yeah. Greek symbol of Athena. Yeah. Well, that was forty-two minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Okay, guys. Well, thanks a lot. We'll do it again. You bet. You've been listening to Dr. Jeffrey Kripal on Thinkbook Radio, a production of thethinkbook.com. Information about the work of Dr. Kripal can be found at kripal.rice.edu. For more information about the Thinkbook, our guests, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thethinkbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a Thinkbook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archives, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the host. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much. And no one here pretends to know the limits of the possible. Today's skeptic risk being... Today's skeptic risks being remembered as an idiot tomorrow. And tomorrow comes very soon at Esalen. That's right. I descended a dusty gravel ridge Beneath the Bixby Canyon Bridge Until I eventually arrived At the place where your soul had died Barefoot in the shallow creek Grab some stones from underneath and waited for.